In the name of the one holy and living God. Please be seated. So do any of you have spiritual to-do lists? Spiritual practices that you may do, that you may want to do, that you've attempted to do, or maybe wish that you did. There's straightforward ones like coming to church. Check, you've all done that today. (laughs) Praying, we've done it and we're going to keep doing it. But just take a moment. If you were to make a list of all the ones you've done or hope to do or think you could never do or maybe think you're not doing right and maybe you're not such a great spiritual person, what is on that list? I'll tell you, if you've been to seminary, that list is overwhelming. I came out with the knowledge that apparently on a daily basis I was to pray, including meditation and centering prayer, and because we're Episcopalians, that means also doing morning prayer, noonday prayer, evening prayer, plus Compline, if you have time, and not the short devotion that's in the beginning of the prayer book, but the longer devotions, full-on morning, noonday, evening prayer. I'm to read the Bible every day, do theological or daily devotional reading, ideally about a half an hour before work begins. Keep a journal, and then at the end of the day, do the daily examine. Where did I see God today? Where did I fall short? And then on a more extended basis, there's also a list. I should go on spiritual retreat once a year, ideally every quarter, and one of those should ideally be silent. Should tithe, I should be doing ministry with the diocese, not just with the parish, and social justice ministry with the community and interfaith folk. I need to think about seasonal fasting and pilgrimage. I should be going on pilgrimage and taking classes spiritual continuing ed classes. Those are all robust and meaningful and fabulous spiritual disciplines, but that list is overwhelming. And I am sure I have either preached on or had conversations with folk or led classes on very many of those practices, all which are awesome. But there's a dark side to these lists. And the dark side is that I can use them as a measure of how good a Christian I am, of how spiritual I really am. Use them as a yardstick for judgment. So for many of us behind these big lists lurks this funky idea that it's only by doing all of these that we will have enough faith, that we'll have good enough faith. And this idea that we need to be doing them all. And that's some of the danger that's lurking in the passage we just heard, this familiar story of Jesus walking on water. We tend to reduce the whole story to that one moment with Peter, that one line when he's on the water, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Ye of little faith. 
or I've often joked, oh me, of little faith. And if we play that out, just focusing on that one line, we can be tempted to think if we only have enough faith, we can be Jesus and we can walk on water. And then it's a scramble. Well, what's enough faith? What things do I need on my spiritual checklist? How do I build myself up to be as sure-faced as Jesus wants me to be so I can walk on water and I won't sink? The problem with this laser focus on that one line and that one moment is that it reduces the whole story to be all about me. Instead of focusing on what does this whole story tell us about Jesus? Because I don't think it's about Jesus calling us out of boats to chastise us all for not having faith. See, if we look at the whole story, in the whole story, Jesus is the one who sent the disciples out into this storm. He made them go, is what our translation says. Other translations of that verb are, he compelled them to go. He commanded them to go. So Jesus' call is actually to send the disciples out into the boat, to go into the waters where he knows there will be tumult, where there will be chaos, where they will be storm-tossed and far from land and battered by waves and with wind against them. He knows he's sending them out into a boat where they may get exhausted. But he's sending them out just as they are. If we think about the disciples, they weren't all great seafarers. We have Peter and James and John, who we know were fisher folk, but there's also a tax collector on the boat. There are also the different skill sets and backgrounds of the other disciples, many of which we don't know. And Jesus didn't have a checklist before they boarded saying, okay, do you have the skills and enough uh, seafaring practices, enough spiritual sea practices to be worthy of being on this boat? No. Everyone is invited onto this boat. The disciples had just witnessed when they got on the boat, they had just witnessed Jesus feeding the 5,000. So at the beginning, we hear that Jesus dismissed the crowds. And Jesus goes up to pray. Before he goes up, he says, get in the boat. So these disciples as a whole have seen this miraculous feeding of it abundance beyond belief for people who are hungry. I think this tells us some of Jesus's identity. Jesus who gives love abundantly, who welcomes everyone, every disciple, every follower, invites them onto the boat, in fact commands them, get on the boat. This tells us that Jesus is active in the world and wants us to be engaged in the chaos of the world, the chaos of the world that he was born into. Tells us that he's not always recognizable because when the storm has hit its peak and the dawn is, is dawning, he comes across the water to them and they think he's a ghost. 
Perhaps the story is telling us that Jesus isn't always recognizable in the storms of our lives, but the storms that he has invited us to be engaged in, not separate from. Walking on the water, as he goes over the water, this is telling the disciples, telling us, this is God. This is Jesus walking on the waters, just like creation, when God created the earth and the Spirit moved over the waters of the deep. Now we have Jesus moving over the waters of the deep. And ultimately, when he gets into the boat, after this moment with Peter, all the disciples say, truly, you must be the Son of God. This must be the Son of God. Now, this isn't the first story in the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus and water in a boat. There's already been the story of Jesus in the boat with these same disciples, and there being a terrible storm, and he's sound asleep, and they're freaking out. They wake him up, and he stills the storm. And the question they ask then in this first storm-tossed boat Jesus moment the question they ask then is, who is this guy? Who is this man that can command the powers of nature? So we have that walking, that engagement with water, stilling the storm, and now fast forward the one we heard today. And now the disciples in their spiritual journey on their boats of life are saying, this is the Son of God. So I think this story, if we go back to Peter and the question, ye of little faith, why do you doubt? Perhaps this story is saying, is affirming that Jesus knows that we'll be in the boat and we will be doubting. Jesus knows that we'll be in the boat and unsure that we may recognize, yes, this is the Son of God, but as a lot of these disciples go on to do, and Peter in particular, to deny Jesus later. But what if we see this story as one where Jesus sees Peter, sees the disciples, they think he's a ghost, and it's Peter who says, if it really is you, make me come out. So what if his doubt is playing out in that, if it is really you, testing Jesus? And what if the sentence about the doubt is saying, hey, I'm here, I'm in the world. Why are you doubting? The verb for doubting in this is more accurately translated as wavering. Not skepticism, not refusal, but just wavering. And I kind of like, in these waves, why are you wavering in your faith? Why is he wavering? We all waver. And that's part of our walk. So I think some of what we're experiencing in this story is this arc of discovering who Jesus is as we follow Jesus, as we get into the boat with Jesus, discovering this is the Son of God, wherever we are with our spiritual practices or wherever we are on our own journey with Christ, that God is here, Jesus is here, and it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to waver. 
because God's arm, Jesus' arm, reaches down and saves Peter and saves us in those doubts. So perhaps this is about getting in the boat, being in the boat, trusting being in the boat. All these disciples, with all their different backgrounds, wherever they were on their belief path, they're in the boat. And they're engaged in the world, in the storms of the world. You know, boats were one of the earliest Christian symbols. Back in around the second century, the first evidence of this is some graffiti in the Holy Sepulchre in in Jerusalem. Graffiti on several layers down from the layer that's sort of ground level now. But several layers down, they discovered this image of a boat. And under the image, it says, Lord, we have come, etched into the wall. Lord, we have come, amassed with a little cross. This image, as scholars believe, hearkens to these stories of Jesus in the boat, that we, coming to Jesus, are in the boat together. If you think and you know your architectural terms, the term for this sanctuary, this middle part of the church, is called the nave. Root of that word is ship. We're in the ship. I mean, look at the the upside-downness, the ark of uh, the roof. We are are in Jesus' ship. Every church has a nave. Every church, in a sense, is a boat. And we are in this together. Peter is not there alone. The disciples are there together as we are here together. So whatever storms we're facing in the world and wherever we are with our checklists or not, we are loved, we are held in this boat, and we are called to encounter the storms of today, to continue to discover who Jesus is, to maybe not be so afraid but to let our wavering be okay because God is with us, Jesus is with us at all times and in all places. Amen.